The Patient Will See You Now. We talk health literacy in the doctor's office. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Thursday, May 4th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Dr. Jeremy Cowles joins us. We'll rethink the doctor's visit. How can providers help patients understand and participate in the plan for wellness? Kevin Wooster joins us with reflections on when to pick up a pen and write and when not to. We explore the augmented reality of an artist's mind. Walter Ports talks about the future of art and AI. That's coming later in the hour. Plus, SDPB's Jackie Hendry is our only hope if we want to understand the cultural impact of Star Wars. She's with us here in a few minutes. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. A new grant will help kids in the Black Hills explore their artistic talents in the classroom and in the Dahl Arts Center. The John T. Vakurovich Foundation awarded Rapid City Arts Council a $65,000 grant to expand their arts education. Melissa Nelson is Education Director at the Rapid City Arts Council, and she's with me now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Melissa, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hi, Lori. Thank you for having us. You know, school is almost out. I don't know what your end date is in uh, Rapid City, but lots of people are wondering not only about what to do to keep their kids engaged and learning over the summer, but the opportunities for growth and things that sometimes they don't have time to do in the classroom. Tell me a little bit about the grant, and then we'll talk about how you'll apply it. Okay, great. Um, well, thanks for the John T. Uh, Bukrovich Grant Foundation. Um, our goal for this grant is to offer equitable education in the arts because um, we recognize that the circumstances in the community faces what they face and um, we're reaching for an equal outcome for them. Um, and I do that by getting to know the community going into the schools um, and um, just kind of meeting the community where they are. We've been partnering, um, having partnerships with the Rhapsody Area Schools, um, with JSC and uh, Juvenile Diversion, um, trying to um, offer um, focusing mainly on um, the youth and the young adults in our community. Tell me a little bit about teaching artists in, in the classroom. What does that involve? We offer um, a TAP program, teaching artist program, that actually sends uh, educators, um, artists, into the uh, schools. I've been focusing on um, third through fifth grade for the Title I schools for that program. So a teacher goes in and teaches um, their um, lesson. And, um, and then we, uh, we also have been focusing on um, reaching kids in the after-school program. And we have um, a, we have a, a homeschool groups that come in as well. Um, and we offer um, camps this summer. So um, a lot of students, um, so students from in elementary and unfortunately in Rapid City area don't get art education in the elementary schools at all. Um, 
but we so we try to offer as much as we can to those kids and and we prioritize our title one schools and kids that wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity or know about the doll as well um, to come down and see us so when you talk about equity the key point here is if you're not getting it in the public schools then the only students who are getting really vibrant arts education are the ones who can pay for it, whose families can pay for it. So that, right. do and I understand so this yeah, correctly? Okay. Yeah, so and then thanks to the John, the John T. Colvert uh, Foundation, we're able to offer around $10,000 in scholarships. Mm-hmm. So um, if you go to the Rep State Arts Council at the org, uh, .org website um, and go ahead and apply, we have made, we've broke down barriers and made it super easy to apply for scholarships for those programs. But we're also meeting the kids where they are as well and um, getting those um, teachers into the school district and um, finding ways to um, meet them where they are. And uh, um, projects for justice involved youth as well. What's the potential impact of that? We're super excited. I actually got to tour JSC the other day and met with the program director there. And they want to update their murals and the things that they have going on there. So we're ready to meet with a couple of artists in the community and have them come in and work with the kids um, creating projects. Um, I have a really fun idea (laughs) with... um, it's liquid watercolor and airbrush techniques where you nice. can learn actually what it feels like to work with a can of spray paint and get some murals up there. <laughs> nice. All right. Molson yeah. Nelson, Education Director at the Rapid City Arts Council, uh, talking about the $65,000 grant to expand arts education. Melissa, exciting stuff. Thanks so much for being here with us to talk about it. Thank you for having me. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Happy May the 4th be with you day to all who celebrate in honor of the holiday. (laughs) (laughs) We're bringing you a discussion on everything coming soon to a galaxy far, far away. My guest is SDPB's reporter and resident Star Wars fanatic, Jackie Hendry. She's with me in the SDPB Kirby family studio. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Always a treat. I love how you dress for the radio <laughs> on May yes. 4th. There's yes. a full Star Wars get up in front of me and Thank a lightsaber you. and the hairdo. Oh, this is something that is dear to your heart. And you, my friend, are not alone. Yes, it's true. It is a, it, The galaxy is, is broad and full of friends who <laughs> love this thing as much as I do. Ever since you're a little kid, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. This, is, this makes you the ideal woman. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it, it did me. It did me well on uh, the dating apps for a, t- for a period of of time. But uh, you know. All right. So let's talk about what is ahead. Star Wars celebration. All sorts of things coming out, telling us right. what to look forward to. Right. What's okay. hot? Oh, the hot, the hot things. The big, the the main bullet points. The big thing upcoming yet this summer. The Ahsoka series, the live action series about Ahsoka Tano, the brainchild of Dave Filoni. Um, this is a big deal. Just released that. I can't remember how many episodes, but every episode is going to be an hour long. People are thrilled about this. Um, it's going to bring in some major characters like Admiral Thrawn from the no longer canon Legends series being brought back into the canon. People are freaking out about that. 
and it's going to be a continuation of her story. She started out as um, Anakin Skywalker's Padawan during the Clone Wars animated series, at first a very divisive character for the fandom. A lot of folks found her annoying. Came to be this incredible, A, female lead character of the saga, but also just a beloved character overall, uh, one of the more popular. People are very excited about this series that's coming soon. Um, also of note in coming years, there's going to be a few more series, but the probably most surprising announcement for folks uh, is that Daisy Ridley is going to be returning as Rey Skywalker mm -hmm. in a movie. Not sure yet if it's going to be another trilogy, but at least a movie as Rey Skywalker uh, tries to rebuild yet again the Jedi Order 15 years following the rise of Skywalker. So this is this is big news. They stepped away from Star Wars movies, theatrical yeah. releases for a bit, and now they're moving back into that space. Also, there's going to be a big cinematic event with the Mandoverse, as we're calling it now, <laughs> because everything has to be a cinematic universe. But yeah. those are the major announcements from Star Wars Celebration. All right. I know that you like, I know <laughs> that you like the Mandalorian. <laughs> you can't not know. <laughs> because we work in the same newsroom. <laughs> Season wrapped. Did it satisfy? It satisfied me. Um, it didn't satisfy a lot of people. Yeah. But a beautiful thing happened this season that I would love to talk about, and that is the appearance of Kellerin Beck. Who is Kellerin Beck? No one really knew until mm -hmm. this season, but he, is, uh, he was a character played by Ahmed Best, who most people would know as the voice and motion capture actor for another deeply divisive character in the Star Wars universe, Jar Jar Binks. But we can dive more into that a bit later. But Tell us about the new character, and then we'll get yes. into this, because I think this is important to talk about when it comes to the fandom. Exactly. Who is the new character? Keller and Beck, he is a Jedi master, a beloved teacher, and he. it is revealed that he is the one responsible for saving Grogu, otherwise known as Baby Yoda. He okay. say he is the reason that Grogu survives Order 66 and the massacre at the Jedi Temple. Everyone, it's a flashback sequence. This had been a mystery. People are thinking, what, what main character could have possibly been involved in saving Grogu? They did a beautiful thing by making it not a main character we were already familiar with, but instead a new character, but played by a familiar face to the saga by Ahmed Best. Okay, so talk about this actor, mm -hmm. because when we mentioned the fandom, there is some toxicity in the online community and in Star Wars fandom. This is an actor whose life was turned upside down because yes. of how much people hated Jar Jar Binks. No one... Who, if you don't know, yeah. is was a lot... What? He was animated. He, you know, yes. the actor was never seen. He was the voice, and so it was an early attempt at that kind of a motion phenomenal. capture animation. Yes, a phenomenal innovation of cinematic technology. He, Jar Jar Binks, is the first fully computer animated side character in a live action movie. Yeah, people think about like Andy Serkis and Gollum and all of that stuff. And Andy Serkis, sure, is the king of motion capture technology. You do not have Gollum without Jar Jar Binks. And you do not Why have... Why do people hate him so much? He is goofy. He's literally based on Disney's goofy, according to George Lucas. He talks kind of funny. He's a little silly and, and, and stuff. He's a little bumbling kind of, yeah, kind of guy. 
And he's annoying to the characters within the movie, and that's why they kind of poo-poo him and don't listen to him. But if you look at the series of events in The Phantom Menace, um, that movie doesn't resolve triumphantly without him stepping up. Right. So how does it go so wrong for the actor personally in real life? How does it cross? Yes. Uh, people were so irritated by Jar Jar. I thought he was so childish, so ridiculous. And there were even some critiques uh, saying that the character was racist, thinking the dialect was like this weird kind of trope of like a Jamaican broken English kind of dialect. Ahmed Best himself is West Indian. And he took all of this so personally. Mm-hmm. It, the per, the physicality of the performance, it's his voice, it's all of these things. Um, he was so distraught by the backlash because he also loved Star Wars. Uh, he contemplated suicide and he has become been public about the impact of that criticism. It took a lot for him to think about returning to this saga. Yeah. And so um, people, when his face appeared and he played Keller and Beck in the most recent season of The Mandalorian, people were thrilled to see him. So excited. His They're, face. His, his face. human face. Yes. His and voice. People, I saw comments online saying, this is, hooray, this is Ahmed Best's redemption. Mm. And then my favorite response I saw was, no, he didn't do anything wrong. This isn't his redemption. This is the fandom's redemption. We have a chance to make up for how horrifically he was treated. Yeah. Is there anything that can bring down this? I don't even know. It's not a franchise anymore. It's a, it's a culture with its own holidays. It's a <laughs> nation with its own <laughs> leaders. It, and it, to that point, it can survive mm-hmm. and change and adapt. Why do you stick with it through stuff that doesn't work, things that you don't like, toxic fandom here or there, the onslaught of newness that it must be hard to keep up with and choose which part you want to keep up with? Why is it still relevant for you? Uh, because at the end of the day, it can always bring me back to those joyful, imaginative imaginative days of my childhood and connecting with my parents, connecting with my fellow kids, having a shared imaginative space to play. Yeah. And with with also these built-in values of nobility and good triumphing over evil. I wonder when we approach the time when there is no one who has living memory that is before Star Wars. Oh. Or like the first one in like 1980 or whatever, whenever that came out. Yeah, 77 was the first one. 77? Yes. So at some point, there will be no (laughs) elderly person who can't tell you the story of the first Star Wars awareness at the very least. When I Am Your Father was not a pop culture (laughs) reference that everyone knows, even if you haven't seen the films. (laughs) Thank you, Jackie Henry. You're our only hope. Thank you. you've delivered once again (laughs) the passion for... And may the fourth be with you. Thank you for the donuts. Thank you. If you have a Star Wars fan in your office and they did not bring you treats today, now here is your permission to call them out. (laughs) If you have to listen to 12 hours of Star Wars stories, you at least get fed. Jackie, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank you. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. While navigating a healthcare diagnosis can be difficult and without a roadmap, 
you might get lost. Doctors and other healthcare professionals are the ones who guide patients through the medical system, and the weight of healthcare literacy falls on their shoulders. Well, how do our healthcare providers give patients information they can process? How can they do better? Dr. Jeremy Cowles has some ideas. He is chief physician at Sanford Health, and he's with me in SDPB Kirby Family Studio with um, some thoughts. Dr. Cowles, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Laurie. Appreciate it. This is so important in an age of information, in an age of AI, fake news. Uh, We are swamped with medical information. And who among us, maybe not you, (laughs) has not felt ill in the middle of the night and gotten out their phone and tried to diagnose themselves or comfort themselves or figure out if they should call the doctor. Do you see this uh, in, in Sanford practices? Are you hearing about how it has changed with the more information that's available for people? Absolutely. I think everybody's aware of Dr. Google right yeah. now. And it is absolutely something that we're aware of and quite honestly used to. This is part of the place that our patients get their information on their way into our office. And so for us, it's absolutely about meeting the patient where they're at and understanding that some people are going to do loads of homework before they come in, and some people are going to come in and say, I haven't looked anything up, I just want your opinion. Yeah. And for us, it's analyzing and figuring out who's sitting in front of us and how we can help them best steer through that mountain of information into things that are both helpful for them and that give them a plan to move forward with whatever illness they came to us with that day. So I read a study once, and it was about uh, breast cancer patients. And the outcome, according to this study, which I can no longer cite, was that the more detailed you were at trying to figure things out, the outcome was not necessarily better. So my question is, is it just individual where, you know, some people want that information, some people don't, or does it change the outcome if you have a lighter grip on the information or if you try to find out everything that you need to know. You see what I'm asking there? I think so. I don't think that it matters as much how tightly you grip the information, how much you dig in. I think that's a person-to-person basis. I think the important part is that when you walk in and walk out of a doctor's office, um, much like you do anything else in life, that you have a plan. Mm. That as a patient, you understand the things that you need to do to help yourself get better and how those coincide with the interventions that the doctor is going to ask of you as well. So if I have a plan for weight loss or wellness, that might be easy for me to remember. If you say you have cancer, I may not remember anything that you said after that. Let's talk about some of the serious diagnosis when you're in the doctor's office and you get news. How do you help a patient really hear anything after the news? So in my career, I have had the um, unfortunate opportunity to tell people diagnoses like they've had cancer. And I think it's really important to understand as a physician that after you say a word like that, there's a good chance the patient's not going to absorb anything else you say for the rest of that period of time, for that appointment, possibly even that day. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why it's so important to have that plan that includes follow-up, includes other people on the team to help as coaches, to make sure that regardless of whether or not they caught what you were trying to say the first time, you know it's going to be repeated and you know it's going to be encouraged by other members of the healthcare team to make sure those folks that need close follow-up and absolutely need to be mentored along the way 
get the information they need, even if it's only to get to the next step. At some point, they might be able to absorb. There's 10 steps in this process. But when you, when you lever something like that on somebody all of a sudden, it's really just about what do we do tomorrow and how do we mm -hmm. make it to that next step in my care. Saying that you have cancer or saying that you have many of the other diseases that you don't want to have isn't necessarily the death sentence that my grandmother would have heard when she had cancer. Although that's a bad example because my grandmother did have cancer and survived it at 90. Mm -hmm. So there are an awful lot of people walking around who are cancer survivors right now. How do you give people the facts and the reassurance without giving them false hope? I don't know that there's such a thing as false hope. I think there is honesty and clarity, but when it comes right down to it, all of our patients wanna know that we understand the illness they're going through and that we can provide them with a plan to help them get through it. Now, we have to be honest about the fact that sometimes getting through it is just getting to tomorrow comfortably, and sometimes getting through it is we wanna talk to, about what you're gonna be doing in 20 years. And that level of transparency has to be there, but it doesn't change the fact that a little bit of compassion and a good plan goes a long way for both of those patients, for them to understand what a win looks like and how we can help get to one of those wins. Yeah. What kind of feedback system do you have that's useful that you think doctors can learn how to interact better through know, surveys or interviews or or just hearing what the patient has to say? I think the most important part is what we call teach back. It is asking the person you're sitting with, whether it be a nurse who I've just given an order to, or whether it be a patient, what did you just hear me say? Mm. Or in your words, can you tell me what the plan is? If they can repeat back the plan, you learn immensely more about what your patient understood and how they're going to be able to action on it. If they can't repeat back your plan, there's a ch very good chance that you didn't do a, the job you needed to do in explaining it. This takes time. It does take time. It takes Absolutely. eye contact. For sure. It takes patience, um, intuition. Do you have time to do that in a doctor's visit? How do you create time to do that in a visit? I think everybody's been in a situation before, be it doctors or otherwise, where you've noticed whether or not the physician has sat down in the room. If you stand at the edge of someone's bed or if you stand next to the examining table the entire time, it automatically creates that impression of I have somewhere else to be. I have to be on my feet because I need to walk somewhere. Just the process of sitting down, even if you have a stopwatch and can say I sat down for exactly the amount of time I would have been in the room anyway, mm -hmm. it creates that bond between you and the patient to say he has enough time, she has enough time to answer my questions and to give me a moment where I'm not in a hurry. And I think it's just those little things like body language and asking the patient what they heard that creates some of that time and some of that openness to say, I'm going to spend the time you need to understand what the plan is. Yeah. And that, oh, what about family members in the room? Is that a good thing to bring somebody along who can ask questions with you? Is that a distraction? Would you rather have the patient there and have their full attention? What's the role of bringing along someone that you trust? I think bringing along somebody you trust is absolutely key. And I would say that whether you're 46 years old and have a medical degree or whether you're 76 years old and brought your daughter along with you, 
I think in both cases, what it does is provide one more set of ears, and particularly a set of ears that's not as engaged in the mental, if you will, trauma or difficulty of hearing a tough diagnosis, and somebody that can be a little bit more objective and say, no, this is what I heard the doctor say, so that you can help compare it to those marching orders as you leave the clinic. Yeah, I find the, the online chart to be very useful. How can that be utilized to say, you know, I can speak the plan back to you, I can write it down, I can ask the person who came with me for, you know, feedback on what, you know, what did you hear about this? I can't quite remember um, what he said about that. But then I like to go and see as much, because I'm me, as much information as possible. Like I want all the doctor's notes to be yeah. in that chart so I can go through it. And I can't tell you the number of times I've gone back to something from a prior year and said, oh, I had forgotten all about that. What's the role of electronic record keeping and, and communicating with, uh, with patients? I think the electronic record serves exactly the purpose you just gave it. It is a, an ability to look back into a period of time that you may not remember clearly. And so whether you're looking back a year to get a recommendation or you're looking back an hour to get a recommendation. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic way to say, what did my doctor really say and what did my doctor really mean? And now I can look and see their documentation of what happened and their documentation of the plan. Yeah, and what were they thinking at the time? Mm -hmm. <laughs> here's another, now people are learning way too much about me, but here's the other thing, like placebo effect and me, it's, it's high. If you give me a pill and tell me it's gonna do something, um, I'm going to believe it. If you tell me there's going to be a side effect, I'm probably going <laughs> to have that side effect. So I always say, don't tell me what the side effects are unless I really need to know, like something serious, like you, we need you to watch for this. But if it's like nausea, I'll tell you if I'm nauseous. But if you tell me I could get nauseous, I'll be nauseous in 15 minutes. <laughs> so, so how do you weigh, like, what is too much information, in other words? I think that's part of the doctor-patient relationship. And yeah. I think it varies uh, person to person. Now, you will find folks that absolutely say, I want to know all the things. Mm -hmm. And I have to refer them to back to the internet sometimes to say, you know what? I don't know all of the listed side effects for your medication. I know the top two or three. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I'll have people like my wife, for instance, who the right answer is, give me the plan and send me out the door and I'll let you know if I'm having trouble because she doesn't want to know all of the side effects. She doesn't want to know all of that additional detail because her goal is to see her way to better, not mm -hmm. to worry about the effects. And each personality is different in how they deal with that and how they deal with that much change. And I think it's a little bit about reading people and a lot about asking them what their preferences are. Yeah, and, and finding out if they watch late night television and all those ads that come up and say the 42 things that can go wrong. And you're like, this is horrific, but it's something you don't actually have. So that brings us back to the beginning of the conversation, which is we are swimming in information. We're not necessarily swimming in hope, but in your career, you must feel optimistic about the advancements that you've already seen for everything from cancer diagnosis and treatment to just the use of technology to catch things early or prevent things. Tell me a story about something that, that you think has been a really positive development and that you're excited to see in the future, how it continues. I think the benefit of screening in general, whether you're talking about colon cancer screening that just dropped down to 45 because mm -hmm. we're getting better at it instead of 50, whether it's breast cancer screening and 3D mammography so we can catch things sooner and take care of them before they become a problem, 
or quite honestly, if it's just personal screening that we do at the door. I can tell you the story of doing athletic physicals. And anybody who's been through sports in the Midwest remembers athletic physicals, 55 mm -hmm. kids lined up and moving right. through as fast as they possibly could. One of our mental health workers in Fargo took it upon himself to ask a two-question depression screening for every one of those 50 kids in line, caught a 14-year-old with a plan that they were going to act out that night. And I'm happy to say that it's now four years after that event and that kid is still with us and doing mm -hmm. very, very well. And so whether you're talking about the screening that can be done with people or the screening that can be done with improved technology, there's always a chance to intervene and do something a little bit better for the world around you. And that's a beautiful place to wrap up. Dr. Jeremy Cowles is Sanford's chief physician. He's been talking to us about uh, health literacy and basically anything I wanted to ask him. So <laughs> we appreciate that, and we really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Let's take a moment now for reflections on a career spent below ground. Dennis Schumacher began working as a miner for Homestake Mine the day after he graduated from Leed High School. He is the son of a miner and the grandson of a miner. So while Dennis thought about doing something different, he ended up following in his family's footsteps. Dennis is now 67 years old. He has hung up his mining gear. He's a building inspector now for the city of Leed. But he often thinks back to the days in the tunnels beneath Leed. Here he is reflecting on his first career, which lasted for 28 years in the Homestake Mine until it closed in 2002. I didn't really want to go to work for Homestake because my dad worked at Homestake. I had my grandpa and grandmas, my uncles and everybody working there. I thought maybe something different, but there was nothing. I mean, at, in the 70s, you struggled to find work. With, and without a you know, college education, you need to do something. So I went and applied at Homestake. I applied in the morning and that night I was working. That's how mad they needed people. So I started at Homestake and six months later, I was a miner at the 8,000 foot level starting out and it was 140 degrees rock temperature. I mean, it was brutal, but I was making better money than most people ever thought about for a kid right out of high school. I mean, my very first contract check, I can I'll never forget my wife had lived in a little teeny house and, and I got my very first contract check and I, this is cool. It was like a thousand bucks, you know? And I raced my down to the Pomida down here and I bought me a big stereo, you know, speakers this big and stuff. I thought I was in heaven. Long story short, there my mom and her mom were really good friends and they set us up. And uh, it worked out really well. And we, uh, her dad worked at the mine. My, my dad worked at the mine. All of our families worked at the mine. My family has over 360 years worth of time in that mine. Oh, amazing. Yeah. It, there was a lot of good miners, but I stood in a 10 by 10 drift with my dad every day. And he was a very picky how we did it. And he's very good at it. And he taught me very well how to do it. We knew our job and he, and he taught me well. And every day we would drill around and every day we'd blast around. And, and we very rarely ever missed around. My last day was on Christmas Eve. I walked out of there on Christmas Eve, wondering what you're gonna do because that's all I knew. We just decided to stay. So then I just got a job with the county for five years as an appraiser, and then this opened up. I guess the long story short is if this is where I wanted to be. This is where I was born. This is where I graduated from high school. This is where I worked. This is where I made my life. 
You can see photos of Dennis and find this story online, sdpb.org slash news. Later in the hour, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, augmented reality, and art. But first, Kevin Wooster is with us. We'll talk about the art of writing about loss and not writing about loss. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. When a person passes away, who writes their story? Well, in South Dakota, Kevin Wooster has filled that role for several friends, family members, and state political figures. It's not easy. It's about trying to encapsulate a person's legacy and impact, and sometimes you don't have too many words to do it in. Kevin is with me now from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. We'll talk about when to pick up the pen and when to put it down. Kevin, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hey, Laurie. It's good to be here. You know, that that is such a difficult decision to make, I think. When do you write about someone? How close do you have to be to someone before you you feel comfortable writing something uh, from the heart, you know? Yeah. And like I said in there, there's sometimes, obviously, during the decades of professional journalism, full-time I did, I just got the assignments. Hey, you covered him or you covered her. Why don't you do something? And I had a column for all that, pretty much all that time, so that was a natural outlet for that. But mm. um, When's the last time that you, I mean, you, I, it, would, it would be Randy Seiler, would be the most, the most recent one. Do you remember the first? You know, I, it would probably have been sometime around 1980, mm-hmm. but I, I honestly don't remember who that, who that would have been. Yeah. Um, it's, it gets blended in, too, because if you're work, working for a newspaper, sometimes you wrote expanded obituaries. Right. And maybe you remember the Argus Leader even had something called a personal obituary, and every day right. the reporter that was either the weekend reporter or the night reporter would, would go through the obituaries and pick one to write about, which that in itself was really a difficult thing to do because you were picking one to write a byline story about and you were reaching out to the family and sometimes those were recent losses, sometimes children. And, uh, you know, it's much different story to call somebody who just lost their 90-year-old grandfather who had a wonderful long life and somebody who had lost a child in a car wreck or something like that. So... And those were tough calls to make too. The newspaper used to have obit writers. That was their their full job. Yes, you know their full job. Who I can't remember the author who wrote a book, but it was the Death Beat, and it was about obituary writers in in American newspapers. So much has changed. Now you get to choose. Um, I wrote uh, a little something about Chris Brown, who was a children's author, but most widely known as the um, cartoonist for Hagrid the Horrible. And yeah. I remember thing I didn't write it for work. I wrote it, um, you know, as a personal piece on my personal blog. And I remember just thinking, am I the right person to do this? And the reason I did it was because I didn't think that he was getting enough coverage as a children's writer. And I know mm-hmm. how important that was to him um, and how much he wanted to be accepted into, and of course he was accepted, but like the, he could have had, 50 books. I mean, he was just so good when you looked at his work in that, in that genre. And, um, 
how he came to South Dakota and, and wrote his first children's book. And that, I compared him to Marie mm. Sendak, and I thought he'd like this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. sometimes do you have to sit back and think, am I the right person? Do I have something to say about this person that will matter to their family and those left behind? How do you make that choice? You know, absolutely. And I went through that process with Randy Seiler before yeah. I decided to write something about it. And part of that was the week. And as I talk about in the blog, it was, you know, Randy had died. And then two days later was the 30th anniversary of the Mickelson crash, which I did decide not to write about, not this year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I thought, did I know him well enough to, to write this? And if, in a, in a case like this, if you can't write from the heart, because everybody had written the news stories about him, and that had all yeah. been covered, and I had done many of those stories myself, the news stories, where you talk to other people who knew him well and the family members and give the bio information. But if I'm going to write a blog or a column, which, you know, kind of is the same thing for me these days, I feel like I should really know someone on a personal level that, that puts me in a position of a you know, sort of authority on that as a friend or a relative or, you know, someone that has a, a connection. Yeah. And so I went through that process and figured out that, that I did need to write something about it. In the world of chat GPT, when everybody is talking about outsourcing these things, you write beautifully in this column about how hard writing can be for human beings and how it's worth it. <laughs> but you quote Red Smith and other people who have just said, this can be brutal to bring your humanity to the page. Still, yeah. after all these years for you, still? Uh, I think maybe more so because now I feel like I have, I think when you're younger, you're just kind of pouring yourself into the moment. And now you're, you're thinking about more of, you know, the, the long-term effects of what you say or the meanings that it might have to people. And I think part of that is over the years seeing those effects. I mean, I've had yeah. cases where I've written those stories about such a difficult, difficult loss for a family of a, of a young child, for example, mm -hmm. and you're just hesitant to call up. You go through maybe the funeral home and say, would there be anybody in the family that would talk to me? And I don't want to bother them if they don't. And the funeral home directors were usually really re good at that. And they sometimes call back and say no, but sometimes they'd say yes. And you would talk to a father or a mother or a sister. And they wanted so much to tell you who that person was and how yeah. special they were in these ways. And, you know, that those got to be some of the most fulfilling, difficult and fulfilling stories I've, I've ever written. They saved that clip forever. They do. Yeah. They do. It's and laminated. It, it yeah. It's yeah. laminated on in, in a box somewhere probably. Uh, Sister Teresa Ann Wolf just told us earlier this week that, uh, you know, her time on the border, people, many people wanted someone to tell their story too. Now, she's not yes. publishing those stories, but she was listening. That's part of it is that you're you're listening to that person, and that can be, if you're doing it in the proper way, if it's a trauma-informed interview, what we would call now, but probably before we just called it being empathetic and kind, um, it can have, it can heal or it could damage if you're being extractive, yeah. Yeah, and, and so often they just opened up, and the, you know, there were times by the end of the interview I was crying with them mm -hmm. uh, about a a person that I'd never met, uh, but it was such an, um, you know, an emotional release for them. And I think to tell someone that was 
separate from the family group or the friend group, I want you to know this story. I want you to know who this person was. And I don't want anybody to forget it. Help me make sure they don't. Go. Write it it down. Tell the world. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Wooster, your writing is beautiful. It is uh, filled with humanity and wisdom and journalism. And uh, people can find it at sdpb.org slash Wooster, (laughs) W-O-S-T-E-R. And uh, thank you, friend. Thank you for being here again today. Thank you so much. How might artificial intelligence tools and augmented reality change the process of art making and experiencing art? It's happening now. It's happening here. An art exhibition opening in Sioux Falls this weekend will invite gallery goers to use an app on their phones, and that is how they will experience a computer-generated composite view of the real world and the world according to artist Walter Ports. The gallery is called Rose and Eugene Presents. The exhibition is called Submersion. Walter stopped by the studio yesterday to talk about his work. Tell me a little bit about Submersion, this upcoming show. Sure. Um, so I was asked by my friends Les and Mel at Rose and Eugene um, Presents to if I would be willing to make some work specifically for their space. And, and early on, they just opened up, so they wanted me to be to have a show pretty early on. And I had been doing a lot of um, kind of work that is out there a little bit, and uh, and I was pretty excited to find a way to implement it all together in a gallery space. And that's what they want. That's what they told me when I discovered this shop, which is right down the street from the SDPB studios in Sioux Falls, was an invitation for artists to stretch and do the next thing. How, how good is that for you to hear as an artist, to have a gallery owner say, you know what? Yes. Yeah, you know, um, I think that, I mean, it's obviously it's fantastic. I think that um, being able to express something that hasn't been done much before or if at all i'm not sure i haven't seen anybody doing this type of work um but to to be given the space to do it and and see it grow within a community and let people experience it and to watch that experience is going to be really interesting yeah all right so what is the experience what is the show so submersion is a show of work of mine i've been doing for a while um about ten, eight or 10 months ago, I started working with AI. Um, I've been a photographer for 25 years. I've been doing digital photo collage for 25 years. Um, but I started integrating that into a process that allowed me to use both AI and my photographs and my own designs um, to create um, work that was not, that was a partnership with technology as opposed to letting technology create something or doing something all myself, this idea that we could explore what was possible with technology, bring that back out, the, what, what the artificial intelligence can create, and then do something physical with that and layer more human touch on top of that. So it really becomes kind of a more robust image to begin with, but then also leveraging technology to take that image and create virtual augmented reality experiences. So the artwork uh, is stagnant on the wall, like you can have a piece just hanging on the wall that exists. Um, But in addition to that, 
you can scan a QR code and pair it with that image. And what will happen is that that image will become three-dimensional in your space. You can walk through it, around it. You can film it. You can photograph it. Um, and it just becomes a totally different experience. So the center of the gallery will kind of be the three-dimensional space. So people, you know, usually walk around the outside of a gallery and look at the, look at the work and the middle of the gallery is kind of open. So what we do now is you're, you're going to see the work. If you scan the barcode and look at the work and turn around, the gallery space will be filled with that artwork in three dimensions. Is the audience looking through their phone or do they have a headset on? What are the different ways at, that the audience can experience it? Yep. So at this point, it it is newer technology. Um, as of right now, it's going to all be phone-based um, or tablet-based. Um, so you want to bring your iPhone with you or, or whatever. Um, and eventually it will be augmented reality will be something you could experience with a headset or whatever. But the idea of using a phone, you know, it's something we all have and it's there. Um, you'll be prompted. The first image you look at it will prompt you to download an app quick. Um, but once you have that, you can look at all of the images. Yeah, you can download the app in advance through the, the show poster because I've already done that. I'm ready for opening night. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and this is pushing art in a new direction, but it's also familiar to you. Go back to the early days of your photography revolution from an eye-rolled film in a dark room yeah. in college and then developed it in that dark room. And then Photoshop and, and Lightroom and those things came along, and that was you know, I went in a different direction and I wasn't doing photography anymore. I was doing journalism as a print journalist. You're in that, the heat of that transition. Do sure. you see similarities? Yeah. So one of the things I'm seeing a lot of, um, and, and I'm, I'm purposefully pushing the boundary and the conversation when I have conversation with artists, a lot of artists have pushback, um, because they feel like AI is copying images. Um, and I, I think that what they don't understand is AI is actually learning from images like you and I would learn. It rarely ever comes up with something unless you particularly focus on a, a particular type of work. It rarely comes up something that you've ever seen before. So backing up a little bit, the pushback I see now, I saw a lot in the mid to late 90s when I was scanning those negatives from the darkroom and starting to pull apart images in Photoshop and starting to edit contrast and color and all of those things um you know the art schools and all of the artists in the art school were like that's not real art you know that's not real photography you're not a creative digital will never go anywhere and you know I was one of the first people to embrace digital cameras when they came out my entire professional career as a photographer was done with digital cameras I still shoot film um but and I appreciate what it is it slows me down but the reality is is like whether we love this technology or hate this technology, it's here and it's not gonna go away. So my question is how do we challenge this technology into being more than just technology creating something, right? How do we leverage our own assets, bring those to the technology, create something, bring that result out and then do more with it. You know, I, I think uh, you know, as a painter, you might reference a photograph, right? And then you paint the photograph. Like there are different levels and sets of things that happen. So you might have a camera, then you have a print of the photograph, then you sketch that with pencil, then you add paint and, you know, you maybe add more to it than what exists in the photograph originally. All of that's part of the process. And I think that creating that history and that texture um, and that we talked about provenance, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm feeding images in, 
having it output images, merging those with other images of mine, putting it back into the AI, pulling it back out again. So you create this, this you said providence earlier when we were chatting, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great word, yeah. but I, I think of it in terms of, uh, of genealogy or a family tree yeah. of images because really like you merge multiple images together. So it really spreads out like a tree mm -hmm. in my mind, like all of the stuff that came to making this one image, yeah. you know, and all of that could be mixed in a different way to create a totally different image um, or, or result. And then taking that and making it into something that's three-dimensional is kind of fascinating. Walter Portz's Submersion opens May 5th, and it's open to through June 23rd. The opening reception is Friday at 5 p.m. Central, and it's at Rose and Eugene Presents in downtown Sioux Falls. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On Tomorrow's In The Moment, how do we respond when our sisters go missing? We welcome Lily Mendoza with the Red Ribbon Skirt Society to the program. We'll talk about how people show up, get in the car, say their names, and demand action from public officials. SDPB's CJ Keene steps into Art Alley in Rapid City, plus the next generation battery research at South Dakota Mines that sends corn stalks into space. If you want to check out Jackie Hendry's May 4th Fit, you can see the interview later on today on our YouTube channel. Just search for In The Moment. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.